This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Jeremiah chapter 31 and chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, reading from verse 35. Thus saith the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. And then Jeremiah 33, <clears throat> verse 19, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have his son to reign on his throne. And with the Levites, the priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, he has also cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before them. Thus saith the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and will have mercy on them. <clears throat> Something different this morning. Uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, I was invited to the synagogue in Belfast. I've been there a number of times at different, hearing different speakers. And this particular speaker, a lady used to be a former member of the Knesset, which is the Israeli parliament. And uh, currently she was a writer, she was an author, I think she maybe worked for a large newspaper. And she was over here uh, meeting some uh, political leaders. And uh, she was giving a talk that night, which was very interesting. She was very academic, highly educated, world-traveled, very interesting speaker indeed. And at the end of her talk, uh, there was a just a short period, a Q&A period, a question-answer period. And so various questions came from the floor to her, which she answered. And I tell you the truth, I can't remember one of them, except the last one. And it was a little woman near the front of the synagogue, uh, just looking right up at her. And she stood up and she says, can you answer me this? Why are we Jews so persecuted? Why is Israel so hated? around the world? And I thought, that's a good question. I'm really interested to hear her answer. But sadly, I was greatly disappointed, for she did have no answer to give. She just made a reply. And her reply was three words, 
I don't know. How disappointing was that for that wee woman and everybody else in the synagogue? I don't know. And when she said that, I immediately felt, well, you probably don't know a lot about your Hebrew Bible if you don't know the answer to that question. You may be very academic, you may be well-traveled, you may have been in the Israeli parliament, but you're not so up-to-date on God's word about the subject. Anti-Semitism is not a new phenomenon. Uh, just whenever we did the study about the life of Moses just a few weeks ago, you remember we told you that the first recorded anti-Semite in history was the Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, the one who wanted to slaughter all the little newborn Hebrew boys. And then, of course, that card-carrying, died-in-the-wool anti-Semite Haman who wanted to kill every Jew, man, woman, boy, and girl in the whole empire of Persia. Thank God he didn't succeed in that. And then, of course, just 75 years ago, you had the world's greatest anti-Semite, Hitler, who succeeded in slaughtering six million Jews, over one million of them little children. And so anti-Semitism has been around for a very, very long time indeed. Uh, anybody has ever uh, visited Yad Vashem, which is the, the Holocaust memorial site in Jerusalem, if you're going to visit there, to go there, and you go around, and, and there's boards uh, where, the, where the Nazis had planned to kill every Jew all over Europe. And there's actually a board with Ireland on it. And they had the numbers of every single living Jew in Ireland, and they intended to slaughter them uh, also. And as, as reprehensible as all of that is, and it is, I think that just as reprehensible was how some of the early church fathers treated the Jewish uh, people. Forgetting or ignoring the roots of Christianity spread from Judaism. And some of the very early church fathers were very, very scathing in their lectures and in their messages and their sermons uh, against the Jews. Origen, about 200 years after Christ, he taught that the Jews had forever forfeited the rights that they had under their covenant with God because he said they were solely responsible for the death of Christ. That in spite of the promises of God, in spite of the blood covenant that God had with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and in spite of the very clear teaching that Paul gave in Romans chapter 9 through 11, that God had not finished with the Jewish people. He had not finished with Israel at all, that he had future plans for them. And so Origen was probably the one who sowed the seeds of anti-Semitism within the church. Now, these were great men in their own way and loved God, but they had blind spots, and this is one of them. And so they, they ranted and raved against the Jews, and that caused a lot of anti-Semitism. Justin Martyr in the second century taught that the church was now the true Israel, and God replaced his covenant with the Jews for a covenant with the church, and that's replacement theology as it's called today. And it is true that God temporarily, temporarily has laid aside the Jews 
But it's only temporary, Paul said in Romans, but he will bring them back again. But replacement theology is taught in many branches of the church today. Tertullian, who died about A.D. 230, he said that God's grace was no longer among them. Clement of Alexandria taught that the church had replaced Israel in God's affections and that the scriptures had now become the possession of Christians because only they could understand them. John Christosom, who was the bishop of Constantinople in the fourth century, his name means golden mouth. He was a brilliant orator and he taught in the early fifth century and he produced eight sermons against the Jews, accusing the Jews, as usual, of being Christ killers. And Malcolm Henn, his book, The Roots of Christian Antisemitism, he shows his criticism, his hatred against the synagogue. And he wrote this, and I'm sorry if you're listening to me today, either even in here or whether you're listening in a podcast, if you're Jewish, I'm sorry, this will offend you. But, but I have to share it because it's a terrible stain on the Christian church dealing with the Jews. He said the synagogue was a criminal assembly of Jews, a place of meeting for the assassins of Christ, a house worse than a drinking shop, a den of thieves, a house of ill fame, a dwelling of iniquity, the refuge of devils, a gulf and an abyss of perdition. How awful is that? And because of these teaching of these sermons, the Jews had often led them to the point wherever, whatever nation they were living in, it led them to the point where they offered baptism or expulsion or baptism or torture, torture or baptism or even death. And then came the Middle Ages in Europe. Uh, and the Jews were treated abominably in the Middle Ages all over Europe, particularly Easter time because again they were accused of being Christ killers. Pope Gregory II banned them from all public employment. In 1100 AD came the Crusades. The Crusades were ostensibly to get rid of the, the Muslims in the Holy Land. But on the way there and on the way back, during that whole period, if the Crusaders lost some battles, they took it out on the Jews and they slaughtered them. And if they won battles, then in their pride and their arrogance, they slaughtered the Jews again. And so it was an awful time uh, for, the, for the Jews. The Spanish Inquisition was another terrible time for the Jews. In 1492, all Jews in Spain were given the choice, either convert to Catholicism or be expelled. 170,000 of them left. Can you imagine... 170,000 people having to get out immediately with nowhere to go, not knowing how to get there. And all you have was the clothes in your back and maybe a little suitcase or something, a little pack in your back. That's all they have. However, tens of thousands got baptized but still continued to practice Judaism in secret. They became known as the Moranos. But they were watched and spied on intently to see if they would... Uh, if they would work on Saturday or if they'd worship on Sunday to see if they'd eat pork or not. All the Jewish traditions to see if any of them was following them still. And if they did, then there was an inquisition. And during that period of the Spanish inquisition, between 30,000 and 50,000 Jews were burned at the stake for no other reason than they were Jews. 
the Russian pogroms with the Cossacks and the Tsars, again, simply accusing them of being Christ killers. And then Martin Luther, the great reformer, the father of the Protestant Reformation, brilliant as these men were, when he started out, he was very pro-Jewish, very pro-Jewish. But after about 20 years, and particularly after the Reformation, when he wasn't seeing converts from Jews to Christians, uh, then he began to turn very much against them. And he reeled against them with terrible vitriol. And here's what he said. He urged that the synagogues be set in fire, that their prayer books destroyed and rabbis forbidden to preach, that their homes be smashed and destroyed, that their property seized, and that these poisonous envenomed worms should be drafted and forced into forced labor and made to earn their bread by the sweat of their noses. Hitler, when he came along, and his book, Mein Kampf, which means my struggle, Here's what he says, and I quote from him. Today I believe that I am acting in accordance with the Almighty Creator by defending myself against the Jew. I am fighting for the work of the Lord. Where do you think he got those ideas? From some of the early church fathers, sad to say. And so during Kristallnacht, Kristallnacht means the night of broken glass, November the 9th, 10th, 1938, that the Nazi party, they sent out people and they rampaged through Germany. Their synagogues were burned, their prayer books were burned, their homes and business destroyed. Exactly what Luther advocated. And then followed the ghettos and of course then inevitably came the Holocaust. And then we may wonder why the Jews struggles with Christians and Christianity and the church and the cross and Jesus Christ. Because in their minds, all we ever got from the church was persecution. Last year, the year before, right here in this pulpit, we had a Messianic Jew, Avi Misraki. And Avi has got a great church in Tel Aviv. And Gary and I, whenever we were at a conference in Jerusalem two Januarys ago, he was one of the panel speakers. And I remember him saying, he says, you know, when I was a little boy at school, we were not allowed to write, when it came to maths, we were not allowed to write the plus sign because it was the shape of a cross. He says, that's how bad it was in our psyche against Christianity because of what had happened in our history. So we Christians, we need to show much understanding and love towards Jewish people if we're ever going to break down generations of suspicion and animosity. There's not a country in Western Europe that is not anti-Semitic. It appears again that there's no longer a safe place for Jews in Europe. Even the Republic of Ireland has become one of the most anti-Semitic countries in all of Europe. Of course, they would say, well, we're anti-Israel and we're anti-the Israeli government, but we're not anti-Jewish 
but scratch beneath the surface a little bit and you'll find that's not really true. Eamon de Valera, who was a former president of Ireland, Taoiseach twice, he was the only leader in Europe to send his condolences to Germany at the death of Hitler. The only one. And recently, just months ago, the, the Shannad, which is the upper house uh, in the, the Irish government, part of, I've, I've actually been in the Shannad a couple of times and sat in those seats. And uh, they passed a bill recently that if anyone, anybody does any business with, with the so-called occupied territories in Israel, whether that's Gaza or whether that's Judea, Samaria, anyone in Ireland does any business with them, they're going to be fined a quarter of a million euros or five years imprisonment. Now, that bill hasn't passed yet because it's got to go through the lower house. And it may never pass. By the way, that's against EU law, so it may never pass. But that shows you the depth. And, of course, they're at the forefront uh, of the BDS movement, which is the boycott, disinvestment, and sanction movement against all things Israeli. <laughs> and, and, uh, and rather than, which they, they want to rack the Israeli economy, but rather than racking it, actually it's thriving. It's thriving. The only people who's gotten hurt through BDS is the Palestinians, the ones they say this is need of, this is going to help. It's, they're the only ones getting hurt because Israeli businesses then is pulling out of those areas. And that means the Palestinians are losing their jobs. But these idiots can't see that. They're so blind and so full of animosity against the Jews, they can't even see that. Probably it's the United States uh, where Jews have traditionally uh, felt the safest and the most welcome. And because Jews are generally liberal-minded, and they are. Then they, in America, they naturally gravitate towards the Democratic Party, which is the liberal of the two parties, Republican and Democrats. So that's their natural political home, as it were. 70, 80% of all Jews in America vote Democrat. But things are changing. And they've changed since President Trump came into power. Because he's the only president that promised before he got in that he would move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. President Bush promised it. Obama promised it. Clinton promised it publicly. You can see it on YouTube, but none of them had the guts to do it. Trump, whatever you think of Trump, he did it. That was his promise, and he did it. And it's a big, 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 big thing to do. And all hell came against him, and he did it. But he did it, nevertheless. Now, within the Democratic Party, in recent times, uh, there has been some very anti-Semitic Muslims who has come into Congress. Two women in particular, uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Talib, And those two especially despise everything Israeli. And they're vitriol even in Congress against it. Take every opportunity to fight against Israel and the Jews. And they're lauded now in the Democratic Party, unbelievably. And so the, the Jews who fought for the Democrats has now got a problem 
because it seems like the Republicans is their friend, not the Democrats. And so things could change. Now, what about this thing with the American embassy? You see, it's a big, big deal, particularly to the Israelis, because in the 70s, the whole world was held to ransom by the Arab nations because of oil. The whole world, us, everybody, we all suffered. And what they did was they said to the Western nations, if you don't pull your embassies out of Jerusalem, then we're going to have an oil embargo. We're going to shut your oil off. And of course, the nations got frightened, including America, and they all pulled out over a period of time. By the way, from 1970 to 1980, oil rose 2,300%, 2,300% in 10 years. That's what the Arabs did, and we all suffered. I remember in the 70s, I remember our interest rates going up to 19%. You think you're bad now, that was 19%. And it was all because of the oil embargoes they were putting on to get the embassies out of Jerusalem because they said, well, that's our city. But Trump says, no, no, it's, it's, it's the Israeli city, so I'm going to put that back again. And by the way, the world is not so stymied with the Arab oil anymore. In fact, America is big into fracking and fracking has made them less dependent on Arab oil. They're still somewhat dependent, but not as much as it used to be. The oil, and that helped us, but it's nearly run dry now. It's nearly gone. And so these things used politically against that tiny little nation. Uh, within British politics, and this is this morning's more informative, all right? It's not really a preach, but it's more informative for you. Within British politics, it's the Labour Party who's the natural party for the Jewish people in Britain. They've all naturally voted for the Labour Party. But it's a struggle today because the Labour Party is systemically anti-Semitic, and everybody knows it. Jeremy Cor Corbyn, sad to say, is anti-Semitic to the core as much as he denies it, but his actions betray that. And so they've got a problem. And that's why all over Europe, anti-Semitism has risen to an alarming degree. In Germany this week, there's areas of Germany, the German government said to the Jews, do not wear your kippas in public, your little skull cap, because you'll be in trouble if you do, because you'll be attacked. Tax in Germany against the Jews has risen 10% in just a few months. So what's happening? So many, many Jews, are feeling unsafe in Europe once again. The last time they felt unsafe, they left it too late till they couldn't escape. They said, no, the only place we're going to be safe is Israel because they've got an army now to protect us. See, before 1948, there was nobody protected them. Nobody. They had nowhere to go. They had no army to protect them. No nation would open their doors to them. It was awful. Even Britain shamefully treated them badly. But they're going back now. They're making Aliyah. They're going back. We'll talk more about that in a moment or two. We Christians, uh, we owe a tremendous debt to Jewish people. A tremendous debt. It was their prophets and patriarchs that gave us these scriptures. In fact, with the possible exception of, of Luke, all the writers of the Old New Testament 
were Jewish. And of course, it's worth remembering that Jesus was Jewish. He was born of a Jewish virgin, born in a Jewish town, lived up in Jewish culture with Jewish traditions. He died on the Jewish feast of Passover. He was buried on the Jewish feast of unleavened bread. He rose again on the Jewish feast of first fruits. He sent his Holy Spirit on the Jewish feast of Pentecost, and he will return on the Jewish Mount of Olives. Hallelujah. And so there's a, there's a connection between us and the Jewish people. So, why so much hatred? Why should a tiny nation that's only one half of 1% of the world's population be so disproportionately, inordinately persecuted? You know, if you look at a map of the Middle East, and as you know, probably that they are surrounded by Arab Muslim nations, and they're their landmass is only 1% of the whole of the Middle East, just 1%. And they want them out of there. They don't even want them to have that one little percent. Jerusalem, which means city of peace, is the most contested city on earth. Israel is the land that cradles three great monotheistic religions, which is Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. One writer called it a theological museum, and it is. And yet, in spite of all of that, in spite of all of that religion, they're the most secular, they're the most liberal country almost on earth. It's the only country in the Middle East where you can have a gay parade, the only one. And yet it's the only country in the whole of the Middle East where Christians can worship freely. Christians can't worship freely in any other nation, only Israel in the whole of the Middle East. Try to worship freely in any Arab nation, any Muslim nation, and see what happens. Try to worship freely in Saudi Arabia and see what happens to you. But yet you can in Israel. It's the only true democracy with true civil and human rights in the whole of the Middle East, the only one. Yet the UN condemns it continually. In fact, the UN said it's the biggest violator of human rights in the whole world. Can you imagine that? More than North Korea, more than China, more than Saudi Arabia. It's ridiculous. But such is the hatred against them. Sally and I, just before Holocaust Memorial Day, just there a couple of weeks ago, we were driving through Lurgan one Saturday morning. And there was a bunch of people waving Palestinian flags as their support of Palestine. They were from the Sinn Féin party. And I thought to myself, how hypocritical is that? If Mary Marilyn McDonald, Michelle O'Neill, if they got on a plane tomorrow and went to the Gaza Strip and said to leaders of Hamas, until you have a gay parade here, until you institute full LBGT rights here, until you have abortion on demand here, then we'll stop supporting you internationally. I don't think they would get out alive. Hamas would shoot you if you did that. And yet, 
the only place where you can have a great prayer is Tel Aviv in the Middle East. <laughs> and they fight against that. See, that's hypocrisy. That lady I was telling you about at the synagogue that day before she spoke that night, she says, I met with the leaders of Sinn Féin, along with all our political partners. She says, you know what they said to me? They said that Israel is apartheid. That's genocidal. She says, I says to them, well, if we are, we're not making a very good job of it. For there's a million Arabs, citizens. In fact, there's a whole bunch of them, Muslim Arabs, who's in our parliament, who stand up in our parliament and condemn us because we're a democracy. So how are we, how are we genocidal? So again, why so much hatred against the Jews in Israel? In Genesis 12, 17, you don't need to turn to this, but if you read there, you'll see that God made eternal covenants, eternal covenants with the people of Israel. And in Jeremiah 31 and 33, where we just read, God reminds us again of these covenants. And he said to us and to the world, I will only break that covenant if the sun and the moon and the stars no longer shine. If you can measure the infinitude of space, then I'll break my word. And that's never going to happen, is it? <coughs> Satan wants to destroy the Jewish people. He doesn't want God's promises concerning them and us to be fulfilled he wants us to call God a liar. But the Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. If Satan could destroy Israel and the Jewish people, and he's tried over generations, but if he could destroy Israel and the Jewish people, then God's word would be meaningless and God's promises worthless. But God will not let that happen. He will not let that happen. And Paul reminds the Roman Gentile church. You see, the Roman church in, in, in Bigger Romans was started out, it was a mixed church, Gentiles and Jewish believers together. But then Rome turned against the Jews and put the Jews out of Rome. That left only the Gentile Christians. And then the Gentile Christians, after a while, got on their high horse they thought, well, you know, we're God's people now, not really them. We are. And so Paul writes this letter, and he gives them a good telling off, as we would say, barges them. There's a good northern iron word, isn't it? And he tells them, he said, do you not know that you owe these people a great deal? Do you not know that it was through them that we have the scriptures? Do you not know that? He reminds them of all these things. Do you not know that God has made covenants with them that he's going to keep? Do you not know that? Have you forgotten that? So don't get onto your high horse. You owe them a great deal. And in Romans 11, verse 1 and 2, he said, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And in verse 29 of that same chapter, specifically speaking about Israel, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. God will not break his word. And so we began by reading those beautiful words in Jeremiah 31. 
So let's have a little look just at the preceding verses in that chapter. Verse 31 of chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No more shall they teach every neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Ah. So, God has a covenant with them regarding the land, which will never change, never be broken. But he also had another covenant with them, hadn't he? The covenant of the law. We talked about that when we talked about Moses and the Ten Commandments and all of that, right? But they kept breaking that again and again and again and again. In fact, Moses had to read the law twice to them, had to give it to them twice. And Joshua, before he died, he had to give it all over again to them because they kept breaking it and forgetting it and going back into idolatry. But this new covenant, this new covenant will change their hearts. This new covenant, the law would be written in their hearts. It would be changed on the inside. When will this new covenant come into force? Two ways. First of all, when they, just the same as us, receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior or in their case, as their Lord, Savior, Messiah. When they receive him as their true Messiah, then they will be born again of God's Spirit. That new covenant that Christ made on the cross, that will enter into their hearts and will be changed on the inside the way you and I was changed on the inside. They need saved every much as, much as we need saved. And we had to recognize Jesus as our Lord and Savior. They're going to have to recognize him as that and recognize him as their Messiah. They're waiting on their Messiah coming, but he's already come. But they don't see that or know that yet. But when they do, and individual Jews are becoming born again, they become a Messianic Jews. They receive Christ as their Messiah. And there's thousands of them individually. But what about the nation? Well, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 and 13 and 1, it says that they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. So one day as a nation, when Christ returns and they look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Romans 11, 26 and 27. So all Israel, Paul said, all Israel shall be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You see, that old covenant with the 613 laws, <laughs> it was designed to change their conduct but it couldn't change their character. 
desired to change their conduct, but it couldn't change their character. But this new covenant that Christ made can change our character. Not just our conduct, but our character changes us right on the inside. In Ezekiel 37, which is wonderful, because God gives the prophet Ezekiel a tremendous vision. Let me just read this quickly for you. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and sent me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. And I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, a suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews on the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. So two things are going on here. He's seeing a vision of the nation again that has been scattered over all the earth. He's seeing them coming back to become like one man again, bone to his bone, and flesh coming upon the bone. But there's no breath in them. There's no spirit in them. So he said, but there was no breath in them. So he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, or to the spirit, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, can these bones, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say indeed, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy inside of them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves, cause you to come up out of your graves. Open your graves as they were in graves, as it were, all over the, the graveyards of the nations. That's where they were. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. Now listen. In 1948, there was only 800,000 people living in Israel. In 70 years today, there is now 8.5 million in 70 years, 3.2 million people, Jewish people, came from all over the world, from the nations of the world, from the graveyards of the world, and came back to live in Israel. 3.2 million from 130 different nations. Over a million of them came from Russia alone. So those prophecies in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, those prophecies are coming true before our very eyes, even as I speak today. There's Jewish people coming from different lands and they're flying in to Ben-Gurion Airport to live in Israel, just as God's word said it would happen. But they're spiritually dead. There's no breath in them. They're dead spiritually. Most of them are liberal, secular. Many of them are atheists. 
couldn't even believe in God, dead. But he says, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your land, your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. I will put my spirit in you. Whenever God brings them back and there'll come a moment when God has brought them back and they'll say, now it's time to put my spirit in them. Now it's time for them to recognize who I really am. And that will surely, surely happen. And it's getting closer all the time. It's getting closer. But he's bringing them back. That part of the prophecy is being fulfilled continually, every day. So it's only a matter of time, and the time is short, until he begins to pour out his spirit. There's churches all over Israel today, Christian churches. We had a, our pastor here, Christian pastor here, just what, two, three weeks ago? Pastor Shalash, Salim Shalash. And he's only one of many Arab pastors, Messianic Jewish pastors all over. Something's happening. I told you earlier about the embassies having to move out. That's why in 1980, the International Christian Embassy of Jerusalem opened up in the city of Jerusalem. It was the only one. And that was the Christian's way of saying, listen, even though everybody else forsakes you, we're not going to forsake you in your hour of need. And today, today, Benjamin Netanyahu, the, the prime minister of Israel, said that the best friends that Jews have got around the world are Christians. <coughs> Jews never thought they'd live to see the day when an Israeli prime minister would say such words. <laughs> but he recognizes, and it's true. But then he says... The only friends Christians have got in the Middle East are the Jews. And that's also true. That's also true. <clears throat> and so here we are. Listen. Is the Israeli government perfect? No. Do they make mistakes? Yes. Do they get things wrong? Absolutely. Because they're mere men. But under the providence continually. You know, the Gaza Strip, you know, they say, well, the Palestinians, uh, you know, that they're hemmed in there and, 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 you know, and they're treated awful. You know, they're occupied. They call it, they say it's Israeli occupied. The Israelis moved out of that years ago. In fact, the Israeli government forced their own people out of the Gaza Strip, made them get out of it. And what did the Gazans do with it? They turned it into a terrorist stronghold where they've been fired over 10,000 rockets into the rest of Israel. People talk about, well, you know, you know, they're not actually, the Israeli army's not really actually in Gaza, but they have, the, they have the border. They control the border. Well, Egypt's got a border in Gaza. Nobody talks about that. <laughs> the southern Gaza, Egypt has a border equally as strict. They don't want Hamas coming into Egypt under any circumstances. Does the media tell you that? Does the media show that? And you, no, of course not. It's so twisted and biased against Israel. Now, even though we are to love the Jewish people, we're never to hate the Arab people. We're not to hate anybody. It's not within our gift to hate people. We can disagree with them. We can point out where they're wrong. 
but not to hate them. When God moves among the Jewish people, he's going to move among the Arab people. Do you know that in the moment that there's a revival going on in Iran, of all places, one of the most strictest Muslim countries on earth, and yet the imams have got together to try to deal with it, and they're inviting these converted Christians to come and talk to them, say, why are you doing this? Why are you leaving Islam and becoming Christian? Because they, they can't understand it. There's so many of them. God's moving. And God will move. Let me close with this. As Christians, one writer says that we are more aware of the cries of Sarah and Isaac, but we're apt to forget the tears of Hagar and Ishmael. It was so good to have that Arab pastor here a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Here's an Arab pastor He's an Israeli citizen who would not give up his Israeli citizenship for anything. He says, we are the best treated, he says, in anywhere in the whole Middle East. But you'll not hear that in the BBC News. Sure you won't. You'll not get that at News at 10. But it's true, and they know it's true. Right, I'm going to close with this. I'm going to show you a little, quick little video. It's just a few moments. It's a former Canadian Prime Minister. And He's saying, his question is, why don't I support Israel? No. Why shouldn't I? Sorry, why don't I? Why shouldn't I support Israel? So why shouldn't we support Israel? Listen to what he's going to say. Then we'll close. Put, put those lights there, right, fellas, so we can see that. So, the lights have got you out. Take it back to the start, fellas. When I was the Prime Minister of Canada, I was often asked this question, why do you support Israel? My response, in effect, was always the same. Why wouldn't I support Israel? Why wouldn't I support a fellow democratic nation where open elections, free speech, and religious tolerance are the everyday norm? Why wouldn't I support a country with a vibrant free press and an independent judiciary? Why wouldn't I support a valuable trading partner and a wellspring of amazing technological innovation? Why wouldn't I support our most critical ally in the Middle East and in the international struggle against terrorism? In a rational world, in a world where simple common sense prevailed, the question, why do you support would be like asking, why do you support Australia or Canada? But we don't live in that rational, common-sense world. So the case for Israel has to be made over and over. I, for one, am happy to make it. Let me start with this. Every military action Israel has ever taken has been to protect itself. Israel is not an aggressor state. It's a defensive state. This has been true from its founding to this day. As a fledgling nation in 1948, Israel was immediately attacked by its Arab neighbors. Their goal was not to contain the tiny new country. It was to annihilate it. No nation came to Israel's aid. Not the United States, not my country, Canada, not the United Kingdom. No one. They all thought Israel would lose. But it didn't lose. It won. 
1967, Israel's neighbors again sought to utterly destroy the Jewish state, a nation that had then existed for two decades. Again, Israel prevailed, and it survived another all-out attack in 1973. Those are the big wars, but I'm not sure there's been a single day in Israel's entire history when some act of terror has not been waged against it, inside or outside its borders. There have been two bloody waves of terror, so-called intifadas, in the late 1980s and the early 2000s, when Israelis were blown up on buses, at pizza parlors, and celebrating weddings. There have been incursions from terror groups like Hezbollah in Lebanon. There have been thousands of rocket attacks from Hamas in the Gaza Strip, even after Israel completely withdrew from that territory in 2005. In between the wars, in between the terror, Israel has sought peace with its neighbors, and it has achieved peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan. For others, however, every Israeli gesture for peace is met with incitement and violence. I recount this history for one reason. Any nation that has endured what Israel has endured could easily have become a police state. But through it all, Israel has never abandoned its commitment to the rule of law, to democracy, to tolerance. One-fifth of its citizens are Muslim. They enjoy the same rights as Jewish citizens. They occupy key positions in the nation's courts, press, and government. And they have their own parties representing them in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. To say that Muslims in Israel are the freest Muslims in the region is an understatement. How about this as a human rights test? Prisoners in Israel, be they Jewish or Arab, are well-treated, well-fed, and have access to the best possible medical care. Parents and spouses of these prisoners know where they are and that they are safe. Who else in the region but Israel can make that claim? Through all the wars and all the terror, Israel has survived, and especially in the last 20 years, it has thrived. It's known as startup nation, and with good reason. Key components of your cell phone and your laptop were designed in Israel. A drug or a medical device that has saved your life or the life of a loved one may have been developed in Israel. Yet there are leftist politicians, activists, artists, academics, and college students who devote their lives to denouncing Israel, calling for boycotts, demanding it be cut off from academic and professional societies. Do they denounce the Palestinian leadership that hasn't held an election in well over a decade? Do they denounce the leadership of Hamas, who use women and children as human shields to protect their fighters? No, they denounce free, vibrant, democratic, innovative Israel. With all the brutal and violent regimes, not only in the Middle East, but around the world, how is one to explain singling out Israel for condemnation? Sadly, only one explanation fits, anti-Semitism. Do these haters of Israel question the legitimacy of any other democratic nation, of any nation for that matter? Of course, the answer is no. Somehow, they only managed to oppose the Jewish one. The state of Israel has now existed for 70 years. It is one of the freest, most prosperous, most successful nations on earth. Why do I support Israel? Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't anyone? I'm Stephen Harper, 22nd Prime Minister of Canada for Prager University. Thank you. It's not just a political thing, it's a spiritual thing. It really is. And that's what the politicians feel because they can't see that, they don't know that. 
but there's a spirit behind what is going on to try to destroy that nation. So that's why we need to support and we need to pray for Israel and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's what the Bible tells us. That's why we support ICEJ, the International Christian Embassy of Jerusalem. That's why we have speakers coming through all the time to remind us, because we can forget. You think, well, it doesn't really affect me. Well, what's going on in the Middle East today can affect us all. And one of the biggest things at the moment is Iran, who's threatening nuclear bombs. Now, Saudi Arabia and, and other Arab nations, for the first time in years, are beginning to make links with Israel and want diplomatic ties with Israel. Why do you think that is? Because the Shias and the Sunni Muslims, who hate each other, by the way, who would kill each other, by the way, they're scared of Iran getting the nuclear bomb. That's what Saudi, the Emirates, all these other are heart scared that they would get the bomb because they would have total power and they don't want that. Even the, the, even the Arab nations doesn't want that. And so Israel is in a strategic position today. They're the only one at the moment who could take Iran on. And so they've already said that they will not allow Iran to build a nuclear bomb. So what's this space? Because Iran is getting closer and closer and closer. So what is Israel going to do? Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu now is the longest serving prime minister. He just was elected against all the odds. He was just re-elected again because he's a strong man. And regardless of what you may think of any of these leaders, listen, the Bible says the powers that be are ordained of God. That's what the Bible says. And so regardless of whether we agree or disagree, God in his providence and God in his sovereignty has allowed things to be in place. So we're living in the end times, the end days, and uh, the Middle East is going to hot up for sure. And so it's a prophetic time clock that we keep our eye on because prophecies are being fulfilled even as we speak. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you have plans and purposes for that land beyond even, Lord, our imagination. And Lord, we thank you that your prophetic word is coming true daily. And we know, Lord, that you always keep your word. Your promises cannot be broken. And so we give you thanks for that. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray that your hand would continually be on that nation. And Lord, that the, uh, the attacks of the enemy that are continuous, we pray, Lord, that you'll protect and Lord, that you'll help that little land. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.